Hello, and welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, reporting to you at what is apparently the beginning of pumpkin spice season. Yes, it's August. It's not even mid-August, it's early August. Uh, But some chains have already started to put pumpkin spice lattes and donuts and other other things on their menus. Why are they doing it so early? I don't know. Uh, I know that people greet early arrivals of pumpkin spice items with a little bit of dismay or concern or sadness, wondering why uh, a chain would jump the gun so much. Um... I know that when I was a kid, and I would be alerted on TV commercials, because I was a kid, that's pretty much how we got our information, TV and radio, uh, about back-to-school specials in the middle of summer, I was livid. I was like, don't don't remind me that I have to go back to school. Why are you doing that? Similarly, uh, we're enjoying summer right now, so why are you pushing pumpkin and spice all over me? Um, but from another perspective, perhaps, uh, it's good to think gently about what's coming ahead and, and to get used to it and enjoy it. This is something that they do in Japan, uh, or at least I can think of one occasion when they did that when I was in Japan in, like, 2007 in February, and we went to a cocktail bar and... There were cocktails with cherry blossoms that were preserved in brine as the garnish, even though it was the dead of winter and cherry blossom season is the spring. But it was explained to me that people are very eager to see and enjoy the the cherry blossom season. And so as a, a reminder that good things are ahead, including cherry blossoms, they they put preserved items of what they're about to enjoy fresh. I don't think that's what the pumpkin spice people are doing. I think they're trying to uh, sell as much of their their product as they can, obviously. And as I understand it, pumpkin spice season is, is a very specific time for customers. After Thanksgiving, Most people do not order pumpkin spice items anymore because it's Christmas season and they want peppermint and eggnog flavors and that sort of thing. Uh, So if you want to get a jump on pumpkin spice and drink some early or put them on your menu early, I guess go ahead. I'd be curious to know when people actually start buying them because if people are buying a pumpkin spice latte in the middle of August, I think maybe you should sell it. Uh, At any rate, uh, my guest for uh, this podcast, this particular episode, is Philippe Massoud, the chef and owner of Ilili, a Lebanese restaurant with uh, a long-standing location in New York City and a relatively new one in Washington, D.C. And he has some uh, interesting perspectives on the restaurant industry now, and on Lebanese food in particular, Middle Eastern food in general. Uh, He corrected me. I thought that Lebanese food was considered sort of the 
the top tier of Middle Eastern food because of Lebanon's ancient Phoenician heritage. Uh, but Masoud said, no, no, it's just that it's recently been a crossroads of so much. There's been uh, such conflict and grief there that they have sought some solace in their food and, and worked to make their food a bit more refined, a bit better. At any rate, I hope you enjoy my conversation with him as much as I did, because here he is now, Philippe Massoud. So you are the chef and owner of Ilili, right? That is correct. With locations in New York City and Washington, D.C. That is correct. And the, the original Ilili in New York is what, 10 years old, something like that? 15. Going on, going on 16. Yeah, we opened uh, November of 2007 before the financial Armageddon. And you survived it. So good job. Hey, you know, we've survived the financial Armageddon, Hurricane Sandy, riots, and the COVID. <laughs> yes. I, I and everything that came after. <laughs> yeah, I mean... How how is it going? It seems like things have kind of smoothed out a little bit. That the supply chain issues aren't as absurd, and that um, labor is difficult, but not as difficult as it once was. But I don't know. You're you're in the thick of it. So well, I think there is definitely a new human species. Uh, I'll call them the post-COVID humans uh, that are out there. And, and people's priorities have shifted. Um, and in addition to that, uh, the low interest rate period that dislodged a lot of the low income housing uh, plans that many cities had, have all come together to create this very difficult uh, market. The, the, there are There's a variety of reasons as to why the labor market is suffering the way that it is. And one of them is the you know affordable housing being uh, unavailable. So if you have to travel two hours or an hour and a half each way to go work somewhere and you're working 50 hour weeks, um, it adds up. You're spending 80, 90 hours of your week to, to, to work in a job that's you know barely getting you uh, you know financially stable. So a lot of people exited the industry and, and we're working diligently to turn that around. And, you know, we pay our uh, staff members very well and above and beyond uh, the, the ranges that are out there. But um, there is a systematic dislocation in my humble opinion. And until the powers that be, i.e. local governments and federal governments start realizing and, and, and looking at it from a bird's eye view, uh, if they, you know, if they don't provide relief, eventually it's going to get worse. In my humble opinion, the the, the labor crisis started in twenty nineteen. Started, you know, before twenty eighteen, twenty seventeen. It was it was already in process. Um, but uh, you know, all those zero interest rate years where real estate developers went and built left, right, and center without any plan for affordable housing that that in my humble opinion is one of the ma major reasons why we're, we're having a labor crisis in regards to 
New York City's occupancy, we're still seeing very a lot of softness on Mondays and Fridays, and remote work remains uh, in, in, in effect. Uh, and some industries, uh, I don't think, will... Uh, will go away from remote work. They will stay in a remote work or a hybrid setup, while other industries are going to try to force um, their employees to come back to a five-day work week, and, and, and we'll see what happens. But there is still some softness. Uh, New York City has not come back to what it was. Uh, I think we're, I would say we're about minus 30% uh, of where we were. We've had a lot of hotels close. Um, and and to be honest with you, um, if we don't have a SEAL Team 6 uh, operating both at the council and local government that are truly looking at solving problems and looking at systematic problems, I, I think we're going to be kind of stumbling around for a while. Uh, before either things break completely or they improve. So but luckily, we're doing fine. Well, that's good. Yeah, I'm I'm talking to you from my apartment in Brooklyn, where I work most of the time. I go into the office once a week or so. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's becoming more of the norm. Uh, so say we had a SEAL Team 6 in, yeah. uh, in the mayor's office and in the city council, which we do not. What, what would you like them to do? Well, I mean, first of all, we're the most expensive city in the world right now. Um, I've had a variety of visitors from Europe uh, and, and, and uh, that will not come back to the city uh, because the quality price ratio, uh, as it equals value, is almost inexistent. You know, when you take a, an Uber in New York City and it costs you about... Let's say, you know, we'll focus on Uber Black or, or, or regular Uber, and it costs you anywhere between 30 to $50 for a 20-minute ride, when in Madrid it costs you $15, uh, you start wondering why, you know. And if a filet mignon in New York City costs you uh, $68 to $74, and in Madrid or in Europe it costs you 38 euros, uh, you're going to wonder. And if a pair of shoes uh, that you can buy in Europe costs you $300, but in New York it costs you $600 because of whatever is going on. So, you know, and, and then when you look at our hotel rooms, uh, there is a demand and supply imbalance. And for a very, very basic low-level hotel, you're spending $300, $400, $500 a night and they're giving you plastic cups and they don't even have room service and, and you barely have any amenity. So the overall brand needs to recalibrate uh, and realize that we are competing with other destinations. Uh, we are like a, you know, the city is one large hotel if you want to think about it that way. And uh, we need to be hospitable and tourist friendly and, 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 and we need to provide people value. Uh, and, if, and if that value equation continues to be imbalanced the way that it is, uh, it's going to hurt us. And it's hurting us as, as, as we speak, you know. Um, and of course, then you have the cleanliness and, and the crime issue, which, you know, I never in my, you know, 15 years uh, operating here uh, up until, you know, post-COVID, 
we've never had anything happen in the neighborhood and now we've had a multitude of issues in the neighborhood um so there is uh you know and 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 so so there you know you can't expect local government to solve everything. It takes a combination and a joint effort by the citizenry, businesses, and local government to come at a round table and say, "Okay, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we move forward?" But, but um, we have big problems. I mean, listen, uh, the state of Florida has 19.5 million citizens. We have 20 million citizens. Our budget in this state is $204 billion. Our, the budget of Florida is $104 billion. They charge 12% less in tax. We charge 12% more in tax. Their GDP is only 30% below us. So why is our budget 100% above them? And why are we paying 12% more taxes for less services and, and less, you know? So things need... Uh, a systematic approach, and that's above my pay grade. We can talk about hummus and roasted chicken and <laughs> and, and and fresh pita bread all you want, but you know that's kind of my macro view, and I and I think we need urgent uh, urgent approaches to, to fixing things. Yeah, I, I did want to talk about hummus and, and roasted chicken also, uh, <laughs> and and your restaurant in uh, in New York is in the Nomad neighborhood, right? Which is a uh hip and trendy kind of so so it's funny i was accused of being a lunatic uh when i opened the restaurant in 2007 you know uh, there was nobody here the only uh, danny meyer god bless him uh had tabla uh by the park and he had 11 madison and then we opened this gigantic 10,000 square foot restaurant and people said who is this crazy guy and why does he think he's gonna make it and as a matter of fact Unfortunately, uh, we were death watched on on either. You know, they predicted our failure. Uh, little did they know that uh, we were profitable our first year. Uh, but uh, the neighborhood has definitely transformed, and I think the fact that uh, we succeeded and people saw that a ten thousand square foot restaurant was succeeding in this neighborhood kind of uh, opened the eyes of of investors and developers that hey, you know. Why is this 10,000 square foot restaurant doing doing well in this neighborhood? Let's take a second look at it. Mind you, I had been looking at the Nomad Flatiron area for since the early 90s, and I saw the constant turnover and failures of restaurants and businesses. And, and I think it's the transformation of the park and, and, and what the Madison Square Park Conservancy and, and Danny uh did uh and and when you re, you re, when they refresh the park i think it started the renaissance and and the turnaround of this this neighborhood and we're very happy to have played a role in that and in dc you're on the wharf right in dc we're on the wharf on the water yes and how long has that been open so we so we <laughs> we built dc during covid you know i'm a bit of a masochist i picked my battles really intelligently um we were driving uh literally weekly because you know the airports had the national guard and you had to get all sorts of testing done and all that so we built dc during covid and we opened october of 2021 wow. uh, and dc was only open five nights a week because we didn't have enough staff um subsequently we opened for brunch on sunday and then when we staffed up we opened for brunch on saturday 
And then earlier this year, we opened for dinner seven nights a week. And now we're working on staffing up to open for lunch. Congratulations. Thank you. So why did it occur to you to open a restaurant during COVID? Had you already signed the lease or, or did you see an opportunity as everything was falling? No, I, I had signed the lease. As a matter of fact, I was looking both at uh, uh, Florida and D.C., but D.C., the negotiations had gone forward and we were uh, we were ready to, you know, we had uh, put ink to paper. So, and then I, I had to give up Florida because building during COVID was not going to be a walk in the park. I knew what, you know, I knew it was going to be very challenging. Um, so we ended up focusing on DC and, 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 you know, tried to build the best restaurant in that space. You know, it's a beautiful glass house. It's a standalone building across the water. And we really wanted to do something, uh, magical, mesmerizing, uplifting, um, and, and, you know, and, and that's the direction we went in, and, and I'm very happy and very pleased with, with what we did there. And you're originally from Beirut, right? Yes, I was born in Beirut, and uh, people are going to know my age. Uh, I'm gone, I, I, I came here in 1985. I had an uncle that I had never met in Colorado who had become an American citizen who uh, worked in the disk drive industry. So he was one of the engineers that helped uh, designed the disk drive at the time. And I had an aunt that had left Lebanon in the late 70s that I had forgotten about. So my parents were like, oh, why don't you go meet uh, the American fam side of the family and, and see what you think and all that. And I said, yes, but I can come back, right? They said, yeah, yeah, you can come back. And then, um, you know, while I was here, they obviously called me and told me, oh, by the way, you can't come back home because right. it's very dangerous. And, uh, and 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 uh, the situation is really deteriorating. And uh, I went into the public uh, uh, school system. Um, uh, I was very fortunate that I had an aunt living in in uh, on the outskirts of Scarsdale, New York. So I ended up uh, joining Scarsdale High School. Very nice. And and um, and I'll never forget. Uh, I was a big guy at the time. You know, I barely spoke any English. And the day I, I met with my dean, her name was Susan Diamond, a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, she sees me. She's like, oh, my God, hang on. Don't say anything. She walks me over to the head of the athletics department. And she's like, Ron, look what I brought you. You know, this young 14-year-old that's full of muscle, that's already built and all that, you know. So he's like, son, you know, you know how to play American football? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I don't. Like, do you know anything about American football? I'm like, I know that you got to beat people up on the field. You know, that's that's pretty, I got that down. He's like, have you played soccer? I'm like, no, do you know how to kick the ball? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, let's wait till next year. I want you to join the football team. So, you know, subsequently I, I played football for the Scarsdale Raiders uh, for two years. And, and that was an amazing experience. And, and I started my American journey, you know, at the age of 14, uh, in 1985, and let, yeah, let, if you told me I'd be here for 37 years, I would tell you you're crazy because I, I was dying to go back home, but that became an impossibility as the situation, you know, deteriorated substantially uh, up until they, you know, in the 90s where they 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 signed peace, you know. So so have you gone back since then? I have gone back. My mom still is there. Uh, unfortunately, my father was killed uh, during the war in Lebanon. Uh, 
he was a, a tar an opportunity target because he believed in a unified and peaceful uh, 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 country. And, and, you know, we were a prominent Christian family that lived on the Muslim side. Um, and the same thing happened to Muslim families on the Christian side, right? I'm not absolving anybody of awful human behavior, but, um, uh, you know, when when my father was killed, you know, 200 Christian families left Beirut and moved to the Christian side. So it was kind of a, it was an opportune uh, uh, killing, uh, unfortunately. And then subsequently we ended up losing everything because, you know, we, we ended up selling everything uh, for, for, for nothing, for, you know, almost 10 cents on the dime, so to speak. And um, we became refugees again in Lebanon because we had to move and leave because, you know, our lives were still being threatened by, you know, uh, non-state actors, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, um, and yeah, I've been here. So my mom, I go visit her. Um, I tried to go to Lebanon uh, once or twice a year. I had the opportunity to take uh, journalists and sommeliers and beverage directors to do a wine tour in Lebanon. As you know, the wine industry has really bloomed. Um, back in the day, there were only seven wineries. There are about 40 of them now, uh, if not more. And they're doing really amazing work uh, on the wine side. Um, you know, that there's a saying in Lebanon that you have to be in Egypt to not make good wine because the, the climate is so favorable to growing wine. Uh, you know, the Beka Valley uh, has the right temperatures, the right amount of sun, and uh, it has uh, these convection, almost like convection winds that dry, keep everything dry. So you don't have to spray for rot. You don't have to to manipulate the vines uh, the way we have to in, let's say, in New York State, you know, because it's very humid. So we have to spray frequently here. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, took some people there. We did the tour and, you know, this is what we do at EDD, by the way. We have we have uh, the largest uh, Lebanese uh, wine list uh, in the U.S. We, we really carry everybody. Our process is very simple. We taste, we like, you, you make it on the list, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts. If we don't like, you don't make it on the list, but we want as every winemaker that can sell in the U.S., we we put them on the list because we want our dining room to be like an, a, a Lebanese uh, tasting room, you know, so that people can really understand the north from the coastal vineyards to the mountain vineyards, the elevated vineyards, and what have you. You know, for some reason, I don't think I realized that Ilili was specifically Lebanese. I thought it was Middle Eastern. But, of course, Lebanese is its own unique cuisine. And many people, Lebanese in particular, consider it the finest of the Middle Eastern cuisine, dating back to ancient Phoenicia and all of that. So that's good to know. Yes. So I, my, you know, my origins and my heritage is Lebanon, right? And that's the food that I know. That's the food I grew up with. That's where... All my memories were shaped. That's how my palate was calibrated. Um, I'm also half Syrian in the sense that my mom is was a refugee from Syria, from Aleppo. And Aleppo was really, to me, the, the, the true culinary capital where there was diversity, you know, because it was when the Silk Road, when the caravans were coming from China and going to Europe, they were passing through that area of Syria 
and they would go to the ports uh, in Turkey and some of the ports of Beirut as, uh, as well. Um, the reason why the Lebanese are, the cuisine is known mainly as Lebanese is because of the diaspora and the migrations. The Lebanese are the ones that migrated the most out of the region, you know, followed by the Syrians and, and, and the Palestinians to some extent. Um, and those migrations happened in the 1800s and continued post-World War II up until, until the 70s. You know, some of them were uh, political uh, refugees that were escaping, uh, you know, uh, slaughterhouses in, uh, from the Ottoman Empire to economical uh, refugees. Uh, and then following up uh, to meet up with family members. And, and if you look at uh, the data from Ellis Island, a lot of these people landed in New York and then made their way to South, uh, South America. And uh, uh, because they were looking for the weather that was similar to where they came from and they wanted warm weather and they wanted Catholicism, at least the, on the Christian side, because the Maronites in Lebanon follow the Pope. Uh, you know, there's that's the largest Christian sect. Uh, we also have Orthodox uh, Christians as well. But so all these people that migrated brought brought the food with them and 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 that's why uh, i think uh, it's attributed uh, to lebanese cuisine but the cuisine of the levant is really reproduced everywhere now the difference is in how you execute it um, and the lebanese because they've been invaded <laughs> so many times, whether they've had uh, stints with the Italians, uh, they were a French colony, uh, they were a Turkish uh, province, uh, you name it, everybody's walked through there, um, developed a certain finesse uh, because they got skills from the invaders. And, 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 and more importantly, uh, Lebanon is the only country uh, that has 17 microclimates and the four seasons in the neighborhood. Oh. And abundant water. So think about it this way. You have the perfect agriculture. You have the perfect climate. You have a very well-educated uh, citizenry. And you're getting skills from the Italians, the French, and everybody else. And therefore, the food transformed in Lebanon and became a bit more sophisticated, a bit more refined, a bit uh, more evolved. Um, and, 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 um, you know, that's, that's why I think people think that it's Lebanese, but I'll give you a, a simple example in Lebanon, in Beirut, for example, if you eat the hummus, it will never have garlic and it will never have cumin. The hummus will always be a perfect balance of chickpeas, lemon, and tahini. Now, if you go to the North or you go to Syria, you go to Palestine, Israel, Jordan, you'll see cumin, you'll see uh, garlic, uh, you, you'll see add additives to the hummus that you don't see in Lebanon. Uh, the kibinaya, for example, in Lebanon is, uh, is uh, relatively soft. It's not as dry as you would have it somewhere else, you know, where let's say you could have a 50-50 burghol meat mix. In Lebanon, there is less burghol and it's more of a tartar than and so on and so forth. So uh, another example I use is that if you look at the Lebanese tabbouleh, 
the Lebanese tabbouleh is usually has has an abundant amount of tomatoes and lemon vinaigrette and parsley, and it's a, almost a soupy salad. Mm -hmm. um, as the tabbouleh migrates down the coast and goes all the way to Morocco, uh, it ends up being a couscous with a bit of parsley and a bit of tomato. Now, the question is, why is that? And I, my hypothesis is that it's water. The more water you have, the more vegetables, the more greens, the more tomatoes you're going to have. The less water you have, the more grains you're going to have and the fewer vegetables you're going to put because they cost a lot of money, you know. So, so Lebanon, because of its position, uh, was very blessed, you know, blessed and cursed, <laughs> because the country is in is is on the verge of being a failed state right now. But, but from a biodynamic, uh, eco ecological point of view, uh, it has advantages that doesn't don't exist. You know, you could be you can have tropical coastal weather and grow bananas and passion fruit and mangoes. And then you drive 15 minutes and all of a sudden you have dry weather and you drive another 15 minutes and you have desert-like conditions. So it, that kind of diversity in such a small footprint is just magnificent. And so how does that get translated into the food at Ilili? Well, you know, uh, initially when I ate uh, Middle Eastern food in the United States and we're talking about the 80s, um, I realized that uh, we were in trouble uh, <laughs> because everything had been bastardized. And, and, and But I say that with, you know, I'm not accusing anybody, but this is what the way it was. You know, I think people were missed the food. They reproduced it the best they could with whatever ingredients they had. And, and contrary to, let's say, Montreal, London or Paris, where you had huge movements of diasporas where skill sets from entire villages moved. You didn't have that in the US uh, the, the way you did in London, Paris, and Montreal. You didn't have such a huge diaspora migrate. So people that were reproducing the food were like you and I that had been here and like, you know, God damn it, I want my hummus, you know, and I'm going to figure out how to make hummus and they make the hummus and or I'm going to make my tabbouleh and I'm going to do it as best as I can remember or whatever. And so you had the best interpretative reproduction of the food. You did not have a professional or a uh, authentic approach to it, you know. So when I saw all of that and, and I was in college, I said to myself, I'm sure that if enough Americans eat the food uh, tasting correctly and tasting the right way, they're going to realize that there is substantially better version of it out there and that it can truly be executed you know uh, in, in in its the highest level of authenticity so everything i did here was to go back to the flavors that i remembered in lebanon and i kid you not you know it's amazing uh, how powerful our memories are and how much of an amazing resource they can be uh, when we're driven um, to to do, you know, what I did. And and everything I did, I calibrated to what I remembered it like as a kid. Um, besides the fact that I wanted to lighten the food up a little bit. And, and what does that mean? Lightening the food means that we're going to let the ingredients speak and season them just the right amount to not overwhelm them. 
we're going to use just the right amount of olive oil when we're sauteing to not overwhelm it because we don't want the food to be heavy. Because my whole idea was that I wanted you to come and eat in my dining room and I wanted you to be able to go out and club in New York City. I didn't want you to go pass out under a tree and take a nap because you had eaten so much. And, and, and I knew that I was competing and I, and I wanted you to come back multiple times to, my, to the dining room. I didn't want you to come and eat in, the, in my dining room and say, oh, I had my fix of Lebanese food. I'll come back in a couple of months. You know, it needed to be light. It needed to be uh, flavorful and healthy. And that's what we did. We deconstructed everything. We went back to the drawing board. I used my, uh, you know, my memory banks as, as, as it relates to my palates. Of course, I have family recipes, my aunts, my uncles, you know, you name it. Uh, leaned on the family a lot, leaned on the, the chefs uh, that I had watched all my childhood working with my father uh, in, 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 in the hotel uh, that he was managing. And, um, and that's what we did. So it's the best possible representation of the cuisine in its lightest and healthiest format with the local ingredients, to the exception of tahini and, and olive oil, which an orange blossom water, which we import from Lebanon. So, uh, you know, it's interesting that you try to make the food light because it is my experience, just because, maybe because I love the food so much that you start out eating meze and all of the meze is delicious. And then after that, you're expected to eat an entire leg of lamb or something. That comes. So, so how do you have to like train your guests like not to eat all the food or how do you, how do you figure that out? Well, the, so the way I think about it is that every guest that comes into our dining room be, uh, taps into their inner chef. Because by the mere fact that you're eating meze, uh, you're combining, you're creating bites, you're, you're, you're coming up with your own permutations. You know, whether you're going to take uh, labne and dip it in the garlic whip, or you're going to take the muhammara, which is the walnut um, dip, and, and, and scoop it up with a fried kibbe, which is, you know, the, the fried uh, beef dumpling. Mm -hmm. um, so our rule is that usually one and a half meza plate per guest, uh, a main course and a dessert. That's the ideal scenario. Um, and the more you are, the better it is. Uh, um, however, we have people that will have only a meze uh, feast and they will not go to mains, but they'll, they will, you know, they'll end up with three or four meza dishes per guest and they'll have variety that is, uh, that, uh, you know, is unparalleled. I mean, where, where can you go and order, you know, four dishes and then the rest of your table is ordering another four and you have, you know, almost 16 dishes that have variety that you can't get in a French or Italian restaurant, you know. And, and that's the fun part about eating. It's, it's Thanksgiving every night in this restaurant. Uh, the table is a Thanksgiving table every night. Um, so if you like that gathering and that festive and celebratory feel, uh, that's, you should go dine Lebanese or Levantine or Middle Eastern, you know, because it brings that out uh, in all of us. So, so yes, we do encourage people to, uh, and, and we encourage people to not finish uh, and take some stuff home because you, want, you, you need to be able to do the variety. Otherwise you're going to get locked in, you know? So uh, how... Now I forgot what I was going to ask you. 
Does it make a difference to you from a business perspective, whether they order a, a main course or not? Is is the meze more profitable or anything like that? No, no, not really. It doesn't, it, it's, it, it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, uh, I will say, I mean, from a, you know, if uh, we have a very reasonable average check, uh, even though we're considered to be expensive, but, you know, if you're okay, if people are okay paying, you know, nine to $11 for a piece of sliced salmon that takes three seconds to cut, and they're having issue with paying $4 for a fried kibbe that takes 10 times more effort in reproducing than salmon, then you realize that there's a perception uh, disconnect. Right. Um, and, 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 we we have a very reasonable average check. Uh, we would love it to be similar to the you know Japanese restaurants and all that, but it's not. And 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 uh, that's because people still value the cuisine as being, uh, you know, despite my efforts of the last fifteen years to elevate the cuisine, people still perceive it as, uh, you know, uh, not as uh, finessed as others, you know, but I I totally disagree with that because pound for pound on effort, uh, this cuisine is substantially more complex uh, to reproduce and execute uh, than other cuisines where you're paying 30, 40% more. But people don't realize that, you know, um, and maybe we need, I need to do a better job educating them uh, in that. But no, I, I encourage you, you see, the, here's, here's the beauty. If you come to the restaurant, you can have, you can go all vegan one night, you can go all pescatarian the other night, and you can go all meat the other night, and then on the next night you can do you can start pescatarian, finish with meats. So you don't get bored, you know. I've had I've had my Riviera, French Riviera guests where I bring in some rosé, we'll order the octopus, we'll order the shrimp. We'll order the fatouche salad. We'll order the whole bronzino, you know, and, and a side of fries. And here we are, you know, we could be in the south of Spain or south of uh, of France or the south of Italy, you know. And then I we can get the roast chicken and the hummus and the lamb sausage and all that and do a typical. So that's the beauty is that the menu is very, very playful. And there's a bit, there's something to tickle your fancy on whatever whim you have. So how did you decide to open a restaurant? You went from being a football player in high school to a <laughs> restaurateur. So truth be told, I started, so when we, when the war broke out in Lebanon uh, in 1975, I was four years old. Uh, we were coming down from the mountains. We, you know, like you go here to the Catskills or you go to the, you know, Long Island or whatever. So we were coming uh, down and we we're like, oh, we can't go home. Well, so we went to the hotel that my father and, and uh, our family had, keeping in mind that I'm third generation. So my grandfather started as a cook uh, at the young age uh, because his, his dad was a stonemason. And he was like, I'm not having any of that backbreaking work. And so him and his brothers decided to go uh, work uh, in kitchens and learn how to cook. They ended up going to Alexandria, Egypt. Then they opened up a butcher shop. Then they opened up a the first uh, uh, international restaurant in downtown Beirut, which was called Masoud Brothers. And 
they had a chocolatier, which is a chocolate store, a cremier, which was an ice cream store, a pâtisserie, which was a, a pastry store, and there was a restaurant and catering hall. A long story short, they did exceptionally well. They taught all the, they brought Austrian pastry chefs to teach the Lebanese how to make pastries because back then it was all clotted cream and fried dough and, you know, artery clogging uh, stuff. Um, so we wanted to give you that variety if you were going to clog your arteries and introduce you to butter, cream, and, and, <laughs> and viennoiserie, you know, and, uh, and, and cake batter. Um, so when we lived in the hotel, because we became refugees, we lost our home. Our home was across from the Holiday Inn Hotel where the war, the first battles of the war took place in Beirut. Um, we ended up being refugees in the hotel. So I lived in the hotel for almost 10 years. Hmm. So my favorite spot in the hotel was the kitchen. And I would go to the patisserie and I would steal uh, uh, apricot sablés and eat creme pâtissière by the spoon and grab the tempered chocolate that was sitting on top of the pastry oven and make my own little uh, chocolate sandwiches and what have you. So I was very blessed because it gave me a sense of normalcy while bombs were falling everywhere and people were getting killed left, right and center. Little did I know that I was getting the training that I needed to do what I do today, right? Uh, here I was observing, you know, one of the best hotels with one of the best culinary programs. You know, we had a French Michelin restaurant where the, we used to do flambage, uh, steak au poivre, table side, Dover sole, table side, baba au rhum, crêpe suzette, uh, vol au vent, you know, you name it, we did it. Um, so I didn't know that I was getting the training that I that, that would equip me to have the confidence to do what I, what I was doing. So then we moved to an apartment in 1981, 1881, and all of a sudden my mom takes me to the supermarket for the first food shopping. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, I, I had this hotel and this whole kitchen, and now we're buying boxed Duncan Hines ready-made cake batter, and I don't know what, you know. And we make the first box cake, you know, and I'm like, okay, but th this is okay, but this is not what I'm used to. You know, I'm used to like a Rende Sava or a Forêt Noire, you know, Black Forest or whatever. I'm like, this is not going to work, mom, you know. So <laughs> I pick up the phone. I'm eight years old. I call the chef. I'm like, listen, you got to hook me up. I need recipes. I know I can't get it from the the the, the hotel. I'm going to make it at home. So I started, you know, with pastries at home at the age of eight, making uh, crabs, making uh, uh, tarts, you know, tarto banana, banana tarts with uh, creme pâtissière uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I had the sweet tooth and I was going in that direction, right? I didn't, uh, and then savory, I started, you know, playing with eggs very slowly, pasta very slowly, the basics and all that. And I, and I really enjoyed spending time in the kitchen. And then it, every time my parents had a party at home, the cooks would come from the hotel. I wasn't in the party. I was in the kitchen with the cooks, helping plate and, and setting up the buffet and all that. So, well, sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but we are unfortunately out of time. All right. But thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me for a while. You're welcome. We could talk for a couple of hours if you want. <laughs> yes. And I I hope to continue this. Maybe I will see you soon at Elili. Yeah. Let me know. Let me know when you want to come by. We'd love to, to meet you in person. That would be great. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brett.